Well, what do we have here? Another podcast? That's right, folks. This is episode 240. Holy moly. 240 episodes. This is really cool because I'm just, I'm so lucky to be able to meet these amazing people. And you're about to meet an amazing person. This is Matt Butcher. He's the CEO and founder of Fermion. They're doing some really wicked cool stuff, as my boss and friends would say, around WebAssembly. Really trying to drive the higher level abstraction about how to solve getting applications from prototype to production and being able to do as little as possible about infrastructure operations. This is a really cool problem to solve, and I think it's kind of the next wave of where things are going. There's a lot to be talked about around where's the right place to apply the right abstraction, but more than anything, we dive way into the the background of, of where things came from, and Matt is just such an incredible resource on, on team building, on founding a startup, uh, I, we literally could have talked for hours, and I, I really just thoroughly enjoyed this, and I hope you do as well. And looking forward to having Matt back on to talk really deeply about sort of the idea of finance, uh, about the founding process, uh, what it's like to do that first 18 months and, and two years kind of thing. So anyways, really, really great resource, uh, great, great human, loved the conversation, and I hope you do too. Now, speaking of early stage startups, heck, no matter where you are in your startup journey, you need amazing people to be able to tell your story, to sell your story, and ultimately connect you with customers because what you need is elite performers. And the way to do that is to look to what the team at the Shift Group is doing, where they take elite athletes, elite performers, and they put them into the position to become elite sales professionals. JR and his team are taking people that are from really, really highly driven, self-motivated lifestyles in sports and giving them the training and the tools in order to become elite sales professionals. Not only that, but he can help you and your team build your sales culture, really drive high engagement, highly converting sales teams, really fantastic stuff. So head on over to shiftgroup.io. They're doing really cool stuff. I recommend you check it out. And actually go back and, and listen. JR was on the podcast and we do we do some really neat stuff in, in the conversation with, with JR and his team. And secondly, of course, speaking of being in a tech startup, well, before you go and get all serverless and, and move up to the WebAssembly and Fermion world, all the rest of your stuff, yeah, it's at risk. So you got to back that thing up. You got to back all of it up. You got Office 365, you got Salesforce, you got cloud servers, you got physical servers, you got virtual servers. So many things to back up. You want ransomware? Nope, me neither. So how do you protect yourself against that, right? What do you do? You use the tools that deliver results. Go to veeam, V-E-E dot A-M forward slash Disco Posse. It's a pretty cool name, V-E-E dot A-M forward slash Disco Posse. Go to veeam, check out what they've got. They've got everything you need for your data protection needs, whether it's Kubernetes, whether it's cloud. Anyways, I, I, I'm going to talk too fast if I have to hammer it all out. Go check it out. Go to veeam, V-E-E dot am forward slash disco posse oh and also they've got vmon coming up it's in miami go check it out all right this is matt butcher on the disco posse podcast hi i'm matt butcher ceo of fermion and this is the disco posse podcast
you prepared well. It's my favorite thing in the world is when someone comes to you and they're excited. They're like, I get to do the radio ID. It's, it is oh, uh, I, I'm an I, odd I, cat. <laughs> so I still <laughs> stick to that. People, A lot of people don't know what the reasoning is for it, but it's like, I, I used to listen to old school, like talk radio. And, and that was always the yeah. thing, do a great, great interview. And then at the end, the producers would be like, Hey, can we get you to do uh you know, well, I forget whatever they call and just like, a, and they would use them for like bumpers and intros down the road. Yeah. So I just, yeah. A lot of the, the NPR shows used to do that. I, yeah. So when I heard that the first time I'm like, yeah, this is <laughs> retro cool. Uh, so. <laughs> exactly. I officially be, I don't even know when I became my dad, where I like started to listen to talk <laughs> radio unironically and, and then. I mean, right. it was the it was it was the the joy of podcasting, right? Podcasting oh. is talk radio where you can actually pick a topic you care about. <laughs> I tell you that, and that is really what interested me in the whole format of long form discussion and conversation was the idea that you'd get people that would come in on the morning zoo and it'll be like, ha ha ha, all right, where where are you at today? Like, ah, oh, that's right, come on down, we're gonna be at the we're gonna be at the the local uh, you know Harvey's. I'm sorry, it's a Canadian reference, but we'll at the we'll be at Sheets tonight. Come on down, get your bumper stickers. We'll see you there. And like these crazy, you know, just like three part morning zoo shows. And yeah. I mean, good on them. They got to do what they got to do. And and but it's the nobody has really effective dialogue in those situations and then i started to yeah. listen to longer form stuff and i also used to drive back from my band practice and uh from there i just got used to like the, i played extremely loud music for three hours the last thing i want to do is get in the car listen to more loud listen music, to music. So I, I would put on <laughs> talk radio or an audiobook and yeah. i started listening to like art bell like overnight radio like a view from space, all these crazy things that were on AM radio. Uh, yeah. Where I, I was, it was kind of wild. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's get to We have so much fun because we, uh, you know, we talked a little bit before and uh, I was so happy that we got a chance to, to have you on the podcast, Matt. So for folks that are brand new to you, because we just launched right into the fun. Uh, if you don't mind, give us a quick intro and uh, we'll talk about what you're doing, uh, what, what the team is doing and uh and this whole startup thing the starting yeah. up as my friends used to call it, the starting up I, you work for one of the starting up companies i'm like sure yeah we'll, we'll call it that <laughs> i like it i like it yeah we're a starting up company it actually kind of the 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 verb form of that is is pretty accurate uh you know i I most recently, prior to starting a startup, was at Microsoft, worked in the Kubernetes container ecosystem in, in cloud there. And uh, 10 of us worked together on a team. Uh, we're looking at kind of what is the future of, of cloud. And we were working on a lot of container and Kubernetes oriented systems. And uh, we got a little bit farther out into what is the future of cloud and got really excited about the potential we saw for really driving some brand new things forward. Uh, left Microsoft and in November of 2021 started Fermion. So we're, uh, we launched our website almost exactly a year ago today. So we wow. came out of stealth almost <laughs> exactly a year ago today. Uh, so it's, it's really exciting to like be at the end of that first year of uh, and, and look back and say, you know, we set out with a big vision, you know, something we really wanted to do, a new technology we wanted to pursue. And even only a year later, we're starting to see sort of the fruits of that labor. Uh, and starting up life has changed a lot in one year. We went from economic oh, yeah. boom times to, to some economic uncertainty. 
uh, and and went from you know cloud companies hitting the peak of their stock prices to cloud companies like everybody else kind of starting to get a little anxious about stock prices. And you know it's been yeah. it's been kind of a wild ride on the economic side and a really exciting ride on the technology side. Yeah, it's a a real lesson in the idea that we're seeing more activity in people making the jump despite the conditions, which is really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, sort of ha- having years in financial services, I learned from the the trade group, a slow day is not a good day. Like you'd think that like unexciting would be <laughs> safe, right? I worked for a massive firm that was known as being very conservative, very, you know, they don't do aggressive trading. They yeah. aren't in short set. Like they, they don't, nothing to do with stuff that swings. But That's even, right. yeah. even within that boundary, you don't make money in the market when stocks yeah. are flat. And so the yeah. the swinging markets were were interesting. And I've actually talked with a few uh, folks, you know, on the VC side. And it was interesting that they said, actually, now is the, probably the best time to take that initial, like, if you've got enough money to make it through that first year, mm-hmm. then you're likely to be further into, you know, finding product market fit, getting those early, you know, R&D yeah. cycles through. And then capital will become more available and there's yeah. likely to be a bit of a boom on the spending side as well. Not just on the, you know, it'd be great if you say, Hey, I can get VC money right now. Well, for what though? Right. Like I'm going to yeah. grow into a market that's not ready to consume. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. That cheap yeah, money think- is not cheap anymore. <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's the that's the kind of bottom line. But you're right, there's both a pro and a con in there, right? And when if you're so Fermion, in some ways, you know, we're, we're challenging existing cloud companies, right, that a lot of what we're doing and trying to build a sort of next generation cloud platform uh, is 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 dangerous because we're we're going up against established cloud companies and saying we think we can do something better than than the than the than the big ones than the 900 pound gorillas or however you want to you know refer to the hyperscalers or even the the sort of like established cloud companies an economic contraction can end up being a kind of interesting opportunity because and I certainly would never make light of the fact that layoffs hit people hard and hit people in real ways but suddenly it, we're not fighting to have to pay really high salaries in order to get uh, connected with some really amazing developers and some really amazing product people and things like that. Uh, and and so as a startup, that's a little bit of a boon. And and the the flip side of that coin is a lot of the bigger companies are contracting, which means they have to use smaller workforces to accomplish the same amount of work, or they have to start scaling back their roadmap. And so right. in a way, you know, there are a couple of good opportunities here. Uh, the scary part, of course, is funding is uncertain. Cheap money or cheap money is more expensive now, and 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 so you know we're 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 essentially making a, a little bit of a long term bet that if we can do well with our current funding round and stretch that out to say twenty twenty five, then the funding situation will be much better. And by that time, we should have found product market fit. We should right. have a you know growing user base. And I think another advantage is if you can as a startup if part of your value proposition is either we can do something more efficiently or or make make somebody's job easier or we can cut costs then you have an attractive message when speaking into a market that suddenly has gotten uh you know sensitive to price i someone pointed out to me recently the cloud world has never been under cost pressure before 
because the, it really got going after the last recession. Right. And it's been climbing and climbing and climbing. And, and suddenly the economic situation has changed a little bit. And really, while we all have given lip service over the last four or five years, at least, to trying to control cloud costs, this is the first time external pressure has really come to bear on it. So it's an interesting time in the entire cloud market and maybe an opportunity for those of us who can come in and say, no, we can cut costs or we can make people's jobs a lot easier uh, to be able to make inroads where competing uh, against a hyperscaler in a, in a boom market would have been much more difficult. Well, yeah. And that's really the thing of like, as a, as a consumer of cloud services, right. You have an operating margin within which you work. Right? So like, and now yeah. because you've got downward pressure on the revenue side and you want to make sure that just as, as any large organizations, they got to, they got to stretch their dollar. They got to stretch their people dollar, their, their tech mm -hmm. dollar, and ultimately, they want to try and move to sort of cash conservation. There's a few different things that they want to do to, you know, put the sandbags out just in case the the water yeah, rises. That's right. Yeah. And then in doing that, you know, they're going to drive that pushback to the 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 hyperscalers. And it's interesting. I mean, remember, I don't know. I hard to. I would say five years ago. It was probably like eight years ago at this point. The race to zero. Right. There was this big push uh -huh. of like every time there'd be a post, and it was like watching like you know. Shell would lower their gas price and then right across the street, you know, Petro, <laughs> yep. sorry, Petro Canada, what's a Gulf, I guess, is, I'm trying to think of my, I'm a Canadian, so I can't remember the name of all the American uh, companies, but <laughs> so, and you like right across the street, the opposing company would lower their gas price to exactly the same price. Yeah. And there yeah. was this sort of thing and and a lot of the pundits, that's right, you pundits, I'm calling you out. <laughs> Y'all were wrong. It was easy to sit on, you know, tweet away that, yeah, this is it. It's the race to zero meaning that they're going to basically Starbucks themselves. They're going to open up their own wallet to spend into customer acquisition. And, but mm -hmm. then it stopped. We realized yeah. like, Hey, we don't need to go lower. We just need to offer better services. And then we saw the sort of breadth of services. And then that went kind of sideways where like, you can't keep doing that innovation at scale. And so now I think there's a, uh, I'll say a, a retraction, to, you know, a regression to the mean. Like yeah. People are going back to the core. Like, what can we do to make sure the foundational services are solid and innovate mm -hmm. within the foundations instead of yeah. creating 11,000 more services? <laughs> <laughs> uh, instead of filling in the menu with every single little item you can possibly uh, it's, it you know, come up is with like to those sell. It's, it's those restaurant shows, right? They're like, you've got four, 45 things on your menu. None of them are highly rated. We're gonna put we're yeah. gonna knock it down to five. And yeah. they're like, we're gonna we're gonna lose everything. Like, no, no, no. Like you and so you watch that play out, do five things fantastically, and then add from there, but don't try and go wide early. And even then, like that's Amazon yeah. and, and Microsoft and Google and and the digital ocean, sort of the next tiers and the Oracles and IBM clouds, like they all are seeing that same need to like, Hey, we, yeah, let's yeah. let the ecosystem, let's let the ecosystem solve the problem. And then let's figure out how we can play a part in that solution. I think they're going to see, yeah. you know, and then the only question is, sorry, I'm going on a bit of a diatribe here. The question will be, do they go the Apple route where they continue to let the ecosystem, AKA the headphones, the charging stands, whatever they, they impact, they put them in the store. They're like, love these partners buy their stuff, you know, yay yeah. broken, right? Because <laughs> they don't want that market. They're like, we we love that you are creating it. You are selling pickaxes to coal miners. You are our bir tiny bird on the back of the hippo. We love you. 
or do they go the I won't mention company names, but uh, you know, let's just there are large <laughs> companies that, that have been known to, you know, give you a big handshake and and hold up the check and the partnership agreement, put out the press release, and then very shortly after they announce that they're doing <laughs> a managed service of your exact offering. <laughs> no idea who you're talking about. Just no idea. Uh, and I, I do think, I mean, to to back up there, you there's a lot to unpack there, right? I think DigitalOcean has done who deserves a call out by name, right? They've, they've done a really good job of, of saying, okay, what, who are we, right? We're the company that's going to make a cloud platform for developers. What does that mean? Well, that means good virtual machines, good storage, good, uh, good networking. What does it not mean? Well, we don't have to solve every single problem out there in the cloud space. And, and you contrast that with some of the bigger hyperscaler offerings uh, or or even the large, the, the ones who build themselves more as enterprise clouds who are trying to fill in every little nook and cranny of potential cloud services with an offering or more. Um, right. You know, it, th there's, a, there's a difference there. And up until, again, because there've been not a lot of pressures, I think market-wise on many of these clouds, it has been fairly easy to economically justify uh, what was the old metaphor, throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks and yeah, just yeah. kind of throwing out a whole bunch of services out there and saying, yeah, you know, we got we got enough customers on this to keep running it for now. And and I'm curious to see if what we'll see is 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 those organizations starting to pull back and say, oops, we might have overextended. Maybe you don't need nine different ways to run a containerized application uh, in fact, maybe we're not the ones to even provide more than right. more than the baseline, maybe a Kubernetes or something. And and it'll be interesting. I think we got about two years. Uh, my guess is about two years, uh, 2023, 2024, to see whether they start contracting their offerings back. Right. Uh, for someone like us, then, you know, for any startup, um, is it an opportunity or does it mean you have a target on your back, right? If you introduce a service that is, that is um, more cutting edge and maybe redefining some things. On one hand, maybe they maybe we look at, at the bigger play, established players and say, well, they'll say, this is one of those pieces of the pie we don't want to slice off right now. Right. Or is that the opposite saying, hey, come do what we're doing because it's new and fresh and you can you know push off other things. I'm not really sure. Uh, but but it'll be, I think it'll be two very interesting years as we start to see these kinds of things settle out. I can tell you're a dad because you use spaghetti as the thing you throw against the wall. So thank you for that. <laughs> I know we generally use a very, a much less attractive product to throw at the wall and see if it sticks these. But uh, the- well, I, I, can, I can say I have actually thrown spaghetti against the wall, but that was only to test the hypothesis that- <laughs> It is the Italian way that I, I remember that as a, as a, a growing up in a European style household that there's- there were spaghetti marks on the wall uh, all over the place. So uh, that start sticks to wallpaper, unfortunately. So, um, so let so what I would love to hear, and this is one thing that people get sort of get trapped on. There's lots of lots of solutions out there, and it was very easy to get wrapped up, especially you know when money was more accessible. People could kind of go after the like. I've had two great exits. I'm going to build a solution and then hope that I can make a market, like create a market yeah. for it. But yeah. you very much come at it from the what I believe to be the more pragmatic side, which is you've got this beautiful equilibrium of there's a problem that needs to be solved. You've yeah. come at it with a particular method in which to solve that problem. And now you're testing the hypothesis uh, as any 
good startup yeah. does. And so let's let's start with what is the hypothesis about the problem? Yeah, this is I am this is perfect because the it just so happens listening to you frame this out, right? That we started the company in the previous phase, right? Where we're selling the 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 engineering team, the developers, and the, the abstract concept was was the way to go, and have now entered into the second to the to the new reality, which is you got to start with we have a we have a go to market plan, right? Yeah. So when we came in the door, you know, so we to rewind a couple of uh, a year and some now, right? Uh, as a bunch of cloud engineers working at a large hyperscaler, you know, we're looking at the problems that we that we saw customers dealing with, the problems that uh, we saw internally in the cloud, like how they were scaling and how we were scaling. You know, at the time it was a we, uh, and how we were scaling and and how we were trying to build things out to be efficient and and cost effective and things like that. And we said, okay, well, here's a problem that we can solve. We can work on increasing the number of things you run uh, in a cloud instance. So, you know, increase the density and decrease the cost and decrease the, 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 the amount of electricity you consume, right? Because right. that's that's an interesting category in cloud. The amount of electricity you consume has both ecological impact and financial impact and a whole bunch of things in between, um, you know, but we, at the same time, you know, is tied up deeply with notions of like performance and usability and things like that. So that was that was the problem space that we had sort of carved off and said, okay, we hear both customers and cloud providers saying this is a problem for us. And if both sides of that equation are agreeing, that's a big juicy thing that we can just tackle and figure out how to how to improve. And we worked from there into identifying this emerging technology called WebAssembly as a potential cloud runtime that we could use and address and solve this problem. So that was that was the perspective we were internally taking. Now it just so happened that at the time, well, first of all, uh, I'm going to brag about my team. You know, the team, the the team at Fermion. Uh, this is a bunch of engineers who are fairly well known in the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, who have built a bunch of high profile things. So it's like starting with the New York Yankees and being able to, you know, right. go out and say, "Hey, we want to play baseball for you. Do you think you can you can fund our team?" That's not a bad value proposition to to bring before a VC, nor is the idea that we have created successful open source communities, successful products. And, and that's another good selling point for the VCs of yesterday. And the third one was really WebAssembly is a new buzzword and people are talking about it and we're experts, domain experts in that field. So, you know, while we had started with a core value proposition, which was we've identified a problem, when I was talking to VCs a couple, you know, in 2021, early 2022, I was leading with, we have an awesome team and we're WebAssembly experts and we built cool open source communities before um, because those were real signals at the time. And I think rightly right. so. I think they were very rightly signals when money is cheap that this team was displaying a lot of potential and we had time. Right. Those are indicators that if you give that group of people enough time, they'll bring something awesome to market, even if they're not entirely sure on day one what that thing is that they're going to bring to market. Right. Now, uh, you know, I, I I think if you're if you're starting up, the it's almost the flip side, right? The first thing you want to be able to pitch is we've identified a very clear problem. We have a really good solution and we know approximately at least how we could monetize this particular solution and, and find our market and, and then consequently, you know, successfully go to market. So it's almost leading with the story that we kind of buried behind the yeah, uh, yeah. behind the the team intro and the buzzword intro. Yeah, when we, 
hear about the three T's, right? It's team, TAM, technology. And it's in that particular order when you're making a bet as a yep. VC, you're ultimately, you're making a people bet. Are these people going to be able to carry this idea to the point where the next major event is going to occur, whether that's additional funding, whether that's, you know, ultimately they lean towards, you know, some sort of successful event, uh, you know, whether it's an exit, like they're putting that money in. It's not whenever someone says like, hey, congratulations on your funding. I always, I always say like, congratulations with a question mark. Like I know that's, that's like a free puppy, you know, Hey, I gave you a free puppy and you're like, wait a second. I like, now I, it's like, there's a lot of stuff that comes with this. Like there is a a trade-off, but then, you know, Tam, of course, like I said, how do I identify the addressable market, which I mean, look, you and between you and I and and a bunch of people are going to listen to this. Like we, we all know we kind of have to make those numbers up. They're, they're based in data, uh, but they're, not unlike podcast statistics that we kind of got to, <laughs> we got to, we got to extrapolate and, and that's, yeah. but yeah. It's, it's fair enough. Like they, I mean, they generally know they're, they're buying into an opportunity that has a chance for an ROI within the yeah. life cycle of the fund different. And then yeah. of course the technology is, okay, now I got great people. I see an identifiable market. Now what's the actual you know, the thing yeah. that you're bringing to the market, that's, that's going to make it worthwhile. And maybe it's maybe what I was trying to express there to use your team, Tim and technology, which I love is really more that you have to speak more to the total available market and articulate really how you're thinking about that market. Whereas right. I think, and, and one of the excellent things about working with good VCs is that they are already domain experts on the TAM part, right? Correct. And and the, the, their ability, I, I think people do not, I, for example, as a founder, did not understand the depth of knowledge they had in that area until after, you know, we'd signed some paperwork. And then it's like having, you know, having a best friend that you can call up whenever and be like, hey, I got, a, I got an idea, you know, let me float this by, would people buy X right. <laughs> and have them go, well, no. <laughs> yeah, well, or, and that's the, that's the fun part too. It's like, I always say, it's like when you go to the border services and they say, hey, you know, so uh, when was the last time you are in the country? I'm like, look, you're staring at it, dude. You know, like I, yeah. I you're asking me, but like, this is a courtesy. Like I, yeah. in a sense, like the VCs have so much practical lived experience and a, and a massive yeah. portfolio. It's such a beautiful thing to lean on. Uh, and and yeah, and, and they have a vested interest in moving you towards this, outsized, you know, return. Like the, it's not, it's not all obligation that comes with it. Mm-hmm. They genuinely, a good VC will genuinely be there early and throughout to kind of keep nudging you along and and open their network up and introduce you to other folks yeah. that can validate that hypothesis market size. And, but uh, yeah, it's it, not all like that. Oh boy. They're not. No, all that's like probably, that. <laughs> that's prob- probably true. But you know, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, this is a, this is a big moment for cloud that's never had to weather an economic downturn. But one of the best conversations I had with a couple of the board members for Fermion, the investors, was having them say, look, we've been through economic downturns before. You know, you're yeah. you're still on the right track. Don't panic. You know, in my, the, everybody might be call, playing the whole chicken little sky is falling thing, uh, particularly, you know, um, Twitter. <laughs> that's right, <laughs> but, yeah. But we've been through this before, and this is the shape of the patterns we see. And you know that that kind of calming, educated voice to say, "Look, 
you know, we've had the bird's eye view of markets for a long time. Uh, don't panic, right? Panic would be bad. <laughs> we'll tell you when we think you need to make some strategic trade-offs here, but don't panic. And I remember the first time I got off a call with uh, with uh, one of our board members after that kind of conversation going, wow, I mean, I realized I just lost three nights of sleep worrying about something that that a call to you know, our board member would have would have basically reassured me that, yeah. um, you know, there's a clear path forward. And in fact, the path forward is if you already identified your customers, you've already got a value proposition, you just keep going. Right. <laughs> yeah. What And it, it's the right outlook, the right, you know, <laughs> my favorite thing you talk about path forward. One of my favorite shirts, uh, I, I saw one fellow share online, this is the path forward is lit by the bridges burnt behind me. There's a few folks that kind of go that route. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't recommend that as a way, but uh, that t-shirt people... does not capture my particular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, but it's uh, awesome. It's like that one about product management. It says product, you know, being a product manager is like riding a bike, except the bike is on fire and everything's on fire and everything's going to hell. <laughs> Oh, well, for, for good visual metaphors, that was one of the ones for me was being a startup is like uh, building a plane while you're falling without a parachute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It really, uh, it, all, it, all of those things really kind of come to the fore in, in circumstances like this, where, where we start questioning <laughs> what is the market it's a telling really me? Interesting, it's a dichotomy as a founder that you have to possess both an incredible sort of like ruthless pragmatism to be narrowly focused on a specific thing that's going to be your initial go to market yeah. while maintaining yeah. a broad vision. So like, you're like, that's not the end of the road. This is our, this is our entry point. And it's my favorite thing when someone says, Hey, this is our, this is our first, you know, entry into the market. Here's our first product. And like when you can already hear how they're talking about the solution and the problem space, and then you hear the way they describe the method and you go, Oh no, this is just the start. Like other times it's just like, Hey, you know, I needed to do indoor planting. So I created an indoor planter, like, fantastic. You're done. Yeah. That's it. I hope you can yeah. sell a million of them because you'll be out of the business at that point. You'll have to develop <laughs> indoor watering cans. See it like, yeah. there's nothing else you can add on to this. But when you hear like kind of the space that you're in is you've got a keen, you know, move towards leveraging services over you know, DIY, like, can we create ways in which I can consume something and deploy with ease? we like, kind mm -hmm. of go back to what the PaaS platform was meant to solve, except in order for us to solve PaaS, we had to solve containerization. So we yeah. solved containerization or some ways we still, we're in the midst of solving it. And then from there, now we've got the opportunity that that basis is laid. And now we can take that foundation and that basis. And then now we can truly come at it with the right abstraction yeah. to solve the next layer problem, which is way closer to the, the application builder, which is really where the, the, you know, let's say the new kingmakers, but it's really that like people who are actively involved in finding their own solutions mm -hmm. versus like enterprise ops, which are typically like they're kind of, they're kind of given the the answer and then they just back into the question. Yeah. But developers have a blank slate and the ability to DIY most of their stuff. But then I don't think they want to anymore. We're like, anyways, so I'm I'm like yeah, super excited I, when I looked at the Fermion like <laughs> kind of solution and like your hypothesis of like what's the problem to solve. I'm like, oh yeah, I, I see it all the time. Yeah. 
Yeah, we have we have had the advantage of being involved in many of those first waves of these technologies. And, it, you know, it used to rub me the wrong way when someone would say, well, aren't you just doing X again? <laughs> and 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 I would be like, no, no, this is revolutionary. You know, we're doing something amazing. The world has never seen. And then I realized, well, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this time we're starting from a different baseline, right? Where the, right. the foundation has been built a little bit sturdier and a little bit higher. And now we can build some of these things that we tried to build before to varying degrees of success. Uh, and the way you just sort of articulated cloud, PaaS and, and containers and how those ecosystems each sort of, the, you know, PaaS started first, right? I, I did PaaS back many years ago at, at HP, worked on their application platform as a service. I ran that, that project. And uh, and I loved PaaS at the time, but we were trying to schedule on two virtual machines and that was expensive and it was slow and it was costly, but we still built a solution that resonated with a pretty good chunk of people. Uh, but over time, other technologies come along and the expectations of that group of people change and they need right. you know something that's gonna perform more toward today's modern characteristics. And then you know containers showed up and suddenly we're looking at PaaS and going, well, here's a better, faster way to build it. Then along comes serverless, which we were really enthusiastic around this kind of first gen serverless technology, but there wasn't the right underlying compute platform to run serverless functions. And so we have been stuck for about seven years or so, but really, really it's realistically, it's only about three years that it's bubbled up to the, to, the, to our sort of top of conscience, right. uh, top of consciousness um, that, uh, you know, serverless was a really great idea. Serverless functions in particular, really excellent idea, but we didn't quite have the cloud capabilities to be able to build it the way it should be built, right? So yes, uh, I was just looking at stats for this yesterday, right? 53% uh, of the developers in the, in the CNCF reported that they have created serverless functions. Amazon says 10 trillion Lambda functions are executed per month. I mean, I, I don't... I, I'd have to sit down and count out the zeros on my hand to know how many I'm that was. I'm sweating just right? thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. But yet the, the architecture that the first generation was built upon really not optimized for the kind of problems that we want to solve. So we're excited because again, it's like, well, is this just, you know, PaaS again? Is this just functions as a service again? Well, in a sense, yes. But now built on a platform that's really going to be able to, re to make real the promise that we were really struggling to deliver several years ago. And that in and of itself, I think ends up being a really enticing and fun, uh, you know, problem space to solve. Uh, and if we can do it a little bit better, we're going to unlock a new set of challenges. And my hope is that, you know, WebAssembly will continue to be able to address those challenges, but we know realistically that at some point down the road, people are going to be looking at this wave of technology and saying, well, it was great for its time and it's really useful in these cases, but now we've discovered a new set of problems that we can't quite accomplish. Right. And that's part of the fun part of being in technology, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, and I think this is the, like I said, that interesting equilibrium between, like, like I said, this ruthless pragmatism to be narrowly uh -huh. focus on a specific problem in an opinionated way. You like the, you can't just go there all like, oh, everybody's going to be welcome. Like, no, 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 this is like, this is the framework. We're going to support, you know, X levels of, you know, language, you know, certain mm -hmm. languages, certain frameworks that we can fit into it. We've got to like do this part right. But knowing that you're, you're effectively ramping the methodology 
And that same methodology then can go horizontally where all of a sudden, you know, like, oh, okay, that's great. We support Python, we support whatever yeah. like the, in the serverless side. And also like, hey, guess what? You know, we're adding adding Ruby because some other, you know, open source project has been gaining traction. So yeah. they said, can we take this methodology now and then extend it further? Yeah. And this is where the opportunity comes for you that the way in which you're choosing to solve the problem is already thinking about scale in advance mm -hmm. of the first deployment. Yeah. Yeah. I used rare. to, I think that's, yeah, rare. I think very true. I used to talk about, well, I'll still do apparently because I'm talking about it now uh, to use the terms two-year and 10-year tech, right? And and two, two and 10 numbers picked purely because they start with T and tech. <laughs> but you have those technologies that are designed to solve a problem that's really quite immediate, right? There, there's a problem now, there's a niche right now. We can solve it right now. Is it gonna? Is it the kind of technology that's flexible to build other things or to mature over time or to really go in new directions? A two-year tech, really not so much, right? It's right. really the kind where you say, we'll solve a problem. It'll you know, we'll get popular fast, but then the utility of it will fade as the problem space changes. A 10-year tech is one where uh, the 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 act of solving the initial problem is step one of n right where we're going to we're going to build something that accomplishes something today and opens up a whole bunch of brand new avenues which the technology itself can can continue to adapt to i, I like i think kubernetes and containers are a good example of a 10 year technology where you right. know they they opened up a new way of building infrastructure and platforms right and and consequently uh, they will be around for year after year after year. Vir virtual machines, same thing. Uh, I don't want to pick on things, but JavaScript frameworks often have that sort of like flavor of the day. You know, <laughs> what's the framework du jour? Well, it's X. Okay, well, I'll use that. And maybe in two years, by that time, another more compelling option will come along. And does that mean that the frameworks are bad? No. Uh, does it mean we shouldn't switch to them? No. But it means we have to keep in mind the fact that these are technologies that are really designed for a smaller window of time and uh, and that their utility will fade over time. Whereas something like Kubernetes and containers and virtual machines, what we've seen over the last seven years is that their utility is actually growing over time. The kinds of stuff we can now do with them is well beyond that. And, and so consequently, you know, when we're thinking we want to start a company. Well, we don't want to start a two-year tech company. We want to start a 10-year tech company. And so a lot of the problem space that we carved off was one where we said, okay, step one is going to be helping solve the problems that are inherent in cloud computing today, You know, addressing speed, cost, electricity consumption today, building a good developer experience today, but also such that we're leaning into a technology that's just now entering its kind of growth phase. And WebAssembly is building new features uh, the, the kinds of serverless world is now just understanding all the different kinds of workloads we can do and how, uh, you know, ML and uh, edge computing and IoT are opening up new possibilities that will play to the strengths of these new serverless and WebAssembly technologies. So my hope, my hope is that we are, in fact, on track to build that kind of 10-year tech and doing so. I mean, it's invigorating on one side because there's, there's a long vision that we get to lay out and then play out over time. Uh, terrifying on the other hand, though, because you're banking a whole lot of future on successfully executing today. <laughs> right. And, well, and like you said, there's the moment that you are effectively telling the story of the problem in the market. 
you are going to immediately acquire the eyes of competitors who are mm -hmm. going to look for, hey, if Matt and Fermion are solving this problem, then uh, should should we look at maybe trying to solve it closer to the core? And like, mm -hmm. it, it's interesting that it can drive innovation, but at the same time, I think I think a lot of the the, the hyperscalers have realized the partner ecosystem is as important, if not more important than them broadening their services, because those, if you, if you grow on top of a cloud platform as a provider, then they mm -hmm. win because you've solved the problem. You brought the customer, they get dollars and likely get adjacent services that they can sell. Yeah. And, and so I, I, it's a real win. I think we they've they've acknowledged that like, hey, we own enough of the islands that I don't need to kick everybody else off the island. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've seen really three distinct approaches uh, to add one more to your to your list. Right? There's the the uh, the perspective where they say, okay, well, what's new and trendy in our ecosystem? Okay, we're going to build build ourselves one of those, and we're going to announce it at our next big con. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and then there's the what out there is successful and how do we get them into our marketplace and how do we provide a compelling um, uh, opportunity for them to make money while we make money. Right. Uh, and that's the one I think you just mentioned there that is that is good. And then somewhere in the middle has always been lurking that, hey, who out there in the market is doing something cool so that we can acquire them. And there's, right. I think that one too. And I think, again, going back to where we started, right? Uh, the economic conditions are not favoring uh, the the will build our own and and release it at the next conference one. It's definitely turning a little more toward not favoring the will just acquire whoever's trendy out there. And that means big opportunity for you know those of us who are saying, well, that third route is definitely the way we'd like to go. We'd like to build a platform that is so attractive that users are clamoring to get in the door and the big providers are clamoring to 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 make it work with their platform in a in a in a way that benefits both the the you know Fermion and big company yeah right yeah when it's it's funny I was thinking as I because of my a cyclist I use cycling references which is probably not really easy because not too many people get what I'm talking about <laughs> I got I used a, a baseball popular... reference and I don't even know anything about baseball so <laughs> <laughs> but so the whenever they have a you know a long stage in in a race or even a single day race there'll be like 200 kilometer, you know, stage immediately. Once they exit the neutral zone, as they start the race, you'll get a bunch of riders. which is like escape. Like for, they call them the breakaway group. And their goal is to get far enough out that they'll be able to gain enough time that the larger group behind them can't catch up. Now there's a lot of physics in play and that physics is combined with a lot of anecdotal evidence that shows <laughs> right, that right. they're not likely to make it with distance for the entire distance. So what they tend to do is they're like, let them go. And then they will literally reel them in within five kilometers of the finish. They've, <laughs> they know precisely at the pace that the rest of the Peloton is going, when they're going to catch. And it's, it's almost, it's frustrating to watch, but like in a way that's kind of that, that method is like, we're going to let you go out. They're like, we're not going to slow you down. We're not doing anything. We're like, yeah. no, no, no. We'll let Fermion go and solve this problem. And then one of two things, they're either going to escape and they're going to take the stage or they're going to be so valuable 
that we will, you know, make our play to swallow them up, you know, and, yeah. and, and, you know, in the best way possible, I obviously like to, to make a good, a good acquisition that's going to be good for their customers and your customers, which is the ideal goal. Yeah. I mean, in, in a way that really makes sense as a strategy, if you know that your business is to, uh, you know, uh, if you know that your business is to sort of collect the customers who are going to be, you know, the enterprise class customers who pay very well, that they prioritize stability, predictability, uh, you know, the re relevance to the kinds of things that they're doing, you can get conservative maybe on the R&D front and actually, you know, promote uh, in some ways, the the efforts of smaller startups, individual teams, things like that, to go out there and race ahead of the peloton, as you as you put it, uh, in order to kind of test out new technologies, new approaches, and the, the the group that's staying back is just saying, and when it comes time for us, you know, we'll just you know swallow them right back up again. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I can see why that would make a a lot of business sense. And I know in some cases, you know, from from working at Microsoft, I think Microsoft is a good example of a company that has strategically done extraordinarily well following that kind of model. Uh, so it's gotta it's gotta work. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I, I don't team... know exactly what you were saying as to the likelihood of success of Fermion, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the 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 interesting thing as well is that we're you know we see the waves in the general marketplace like that like or the the, the economic markets that there's going to be a the VCs you know fund a bunch of companies we you know when you study it you realize like oh you know people just hear VC and they're like oh they've just got this pile of money and they dole it out you're like no no, no there's a very specific way they do it it's like ten year yeah. funds there's a life cycle the fund there's a whole lot of stuff inside it. You know, I tell people like read, you know, uh, whatever the Sandhill with Scott Cooper's book on, uh, uh, you know, whatever the, his tales from Sandhill road, really great, great book, which mm -hmm. immediately told me, I don't want to take uh, funding, <laughs> 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 but it was, you know, once you get to that depth of understanding of what the, what that wave looks like, then you start to map it on like, oh, okay. So enough people get acquired, they stay in the company they grow an enterprise business unit because they made a, you know, a VP of a business unit or an SVP mm -hmm. or something. And mm -hmm. then they realize like, I need to solve a bigger problem, you know, or I want to solve a smaller problem that has potential to get big and they mm -hmm. get, they get the itch. And then you <laughs> see the sort of like this wave of, of exits, uh, yeah. of human exits back to the open marketplace. They go into ideation, then they're in stealth, then they're at stealth, lather, rinse, repeat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I, you know, I think there's something to be said for uh, the, the human psychology that sort of underpins that, right? That there are, uh, there are types who are sort of, we look for, there's a type of person that looks for a job going, okay, I want the stability of the place I work. I want to be able to exercise my expertise within some friendly boundaries so that I know what my, what, how I'm being evaluated, how I get promoted. And, and those, they take comfort in that and, and that's their gig, right? That's the way yeah. they, that's what they want. And then there's this group that is just like impulsively creative. And I think I'm at least close to that group, right? Where it, where you love the building phase and then it gets into that longer term thing. And, and like you said, you get that itch, right? but there's, yeah. there are other things out there to be done. And I don't, I don't really want to spend the days doing the same thing that I thought was revolutionary three years ago. And now just feels like a day job. I want to go out there and try something new. Uh, and, and I think, 
I think that's part of the reason you see that startup cycle where uh, a startup starts, get gets absorbed into another company. Then five, six, seven years after that, you start to see the founders and the architects and the lead engineers sort of spin off and, and do their own thing because the creative itch has gotten to them. Uh, but I think then as a startup, in the startup side then, it's the danger you're also fighting against, right? It's the, right? it's that psychology of wanting to keep pushing the boundaries that you have to say, okay, I've got to push back on that and say, I also need to make sure that the thing I am building appears or becomes a stable, uh, robust and reliable, you know, is affordable. You know, the billing system is the right. most boring thing in the world to write. But you really have to have it if you want to make the company work. Um, and, and so there are things like that where you have to fight the creative urge and say, I need to do this because it's part of what makes a business a business and what's going to make our startup successful. Um, it becomes we're a- just at the point where that, that one is starting to hit us and we're going, discipline is going to be good for us, right? It's the right. exercise daily and eat my vegetables part of, of things. Uh, and And... Probably I'm overstating it. Probably it it is still fun uh, in a sense because we know that it's that it's part and parcel of the overall creative act of building a sustainable startup. But it does sometimes feel like eating the broccoli. <laughs> it it does, yeah. And I guess that. But you know, the funny thing is, there's that the personality that makes a good founder, and it's. It, I'll say there's there's two types of founders, well, there's multiple types of founders. I'll, I'll call out two particular archetypes right now. One is one that I think that you map to based on what our discussions already that we've had, right? I can hear even when you talk about your previous work, you talk about we. So you've always got a real focus on inclusivity uh, and sharing the experience so you've got this real sort of like I want to build a I want to build a team a community a group I want to build something mm-hmm. that has an impact on multiple people that has an impact on people period right like obviously there's economic benefits there's literally like green benefits in that we could actually reduce power consumption but ultimately your those are human impact things right so there's that and then there's the raw like I don't want to call it, let's just call it the Slootmans of the world, right? So who come in there like, <laughs> I don't care what he says, just throw money at him. He's going to solve a problem. And yeah. I mean, they're, they are solving a problem that exists, but really it's just looking to, you know, just nail another startup. Like I, mm-hmm. I should, I sound off when I say that. I'm not saying that Frank Slootman is not human oriented, but in the end, he'd probably he knows less about the people working on the problem than yeah. he does about the results of solving the problem financially. And that's, and that's fine. Like we need that yeah. personality, but I, I, I'm more lean to the archetype of like, what can we do together to make more people's lives better? And how can we do it in a way that can generate enough revenue to support us yeah. and rich people who are on that journey? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I, the way I hear you say it reminds me of sort of like the difference between the artist and the artisan, right? Where the artist is is uh, laser focused on realizing their own vision and uh, laser focused on, you know, developing their very own, you know, je ne sais quoi or whatever about mm-hmm. how the, this is my style. This is the way I do painting. These are my works. And it's there's nothing wrong with that, right? In fact, it's a very profound part of humanity that we actually have people that do this. And, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, cave art from millions of years ago or a Van Gogh, you look at it and say, wow, there's something here that conveys something 
deep about humanity and it, and it came through one person laser focusing on their vision. But the artisan is working in guilds or working in workshops or working in collectives and trying to, and, and the focus is on, is really tends to be more on the balance between uh, artistic expression and the utility of the thing being produced, right? So an artisan takes deep pride in doing excellent work. I, by, I have a good friend who's a cyclist. I am not. He he likes to talk about, uh, you know, the difference between a mass-produced bicycle and one that's produced by a small shop. The small shop is a group of artisans. They take pride in the way they weld. They take pride in how they balance yeah. the weight of the bike. You know, it's the same thing whether you're talking about that or talking about, you know, hand kilned tiles from 2000 years ago, the artisan is trying to balance that utility. And, and consequently, what I think you were just capturing is this idea of like the connectedness between the group of artisans and the group of people who are going to, you know, not just buy their stuff, but then become enthusiasts over this particular place does the best work. And, and I think I definitely lean more toward the artisan uh, approach than the artist uh, approach of being sort of a singular individual, you know, shouting into the void and trying to make myself known. <laughs> yeah. It, and it's, it is interesting. Like I said, I've been lucky enough through conversations on this podcast and just my interaction with the community to be like super close to the practitioner. And that gave me such a beautiful insight in being able to see both sides of, of the story. And, and that's ultimately what led me to technical product marketing was like, I can, you know, I would say like, we can, I can give technical content, emotion you know that's really mm -hmm. what what we're doing is how do we make it compelling <laughs> to read and uh, as frank zappa says the computers can't tell you the story what's missing is the eyebrows <laughs> oh that's and, brilliant i love it and there really is this thing and that's why it's easy to always say it's that's why it's easy to eat fish because you you whack them with a bat and they have exactly the same look on their face no matter what's <laughs> going on you know a deer like it winces when you like when, yeah, when it yeah. hurts You're like i we don't don't mess with the deer so what you have is this the ability that you are very empathetic to the human experience and that carries both in the way you manage your team and also the way you're going to handle mm -hmm. your customer community and your peer community ultimately where it's just like people who are going to leverage your technology and they're going to probably say, Hey, you know, it'd be great. They're going to become your product managers in a way, mm -hmm. because they're going to be like, yeah. this is cool. But once you, you see the 15th issue that gets put in there and you're like, it would be really great if you supported X and you're like, <laughs> folks, I think we got ourselves a roadmap item. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's interesting. And in particular, our field compared to maybe like uh, potato peelers, but in technology, the consumer of our products, right? And, and especially in deeper technology where it's oriented toward developers or operations teams. And I can speak both as one of those people and as somebody who's working in that, you know, tr trying to appeal to those people. We tend to think of ourselves as sort of purely rational actors, right? Well, I am a software developer. I think in terms of logic and syllogisms. I am an operator. I tend to think in terms of reproducibility and immutable objects. And, and we underestimate both our actual emotion, emotional sensitivity, and our desire for things that are really not purely rational, right? Like yeah. a sense of belonging in a community. And I think, it's, so the way I hear you describe TPM, uh, technical product marketing is exactly the way I think about it. It's like, this is the way of, of 
appealing to someone on both their rational level that, that they take a lot of pride in, but also sort of like that uh, under the breath acknowledgement. And also I know you need the eyebrows, right? You need to right. know that that there's a community here that is welcoming to you. We're not treating you like you're a robot. Nobody wants to be treated like a purely rational actor. We just like to think of right. ourselves as them. We want to be treated as valuable individuals. And I love the way you describe that because that's so, so much gets right to the heart of what I think is important when you're trying to, uh, for lack of a more graceful term, right? Sell a technology or make right. a tech, woo people to a technology. Uh, I just love that. That's That's great. The uh, <laughs> I hope so because I'm starting a company based entirely on that problem. So <laughs> it's judging oh. by the uptake, I'm saying the problem exists broadly. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> the and and in that piece too, one of the challenges I find this what I want to dig into is the particular persona that it hurts me a little inside. I feel like I die a little inside every time I say <laughs> personas or talk about prospects. Uh, yeah. Like, oh goodness gracious. Uh, you know, I call them, you know, people would say like, Hey, I was talking to a prospect yesterday. I'm like, don't, don't ever say that. Don't ever say that. Say like, <laughs> right, yeah. I was talking to somebody from our, our, you know, the technology community yesterday, our potential customer, like don't, don't say prospect. Cause that's like, a, it's just such a pejorative yeah. to attach to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the idea of selling into sort of the ops enterprise style of audience where they've kind of like, they've generally got budget. They're aware of the value of spending money on products. Uh, they, they're they willing to mm -hmm. live through longer ROI. They're more likely to go with things that are generally stabilized. They're usually not leading the market versus the developer audience, which is starting to merge with, you know, we talk about DevOps and SRE, but in the end, DevOps is way more dev than ops. Yeah. And that persona and the the buying style is very different, a fundamentally yeah. different. So you find ops companies that suddenly have a development spin to their product. They think, oh, I'm just going to jump the aisle and start talking to the application teams. Like I tell them like you, you, it's like saying, <laughs> Hey, I was in France and uh, it's <laughs> right next to another country. I'm just going to whip over there and I'm going to talk with them. You're like, you know, they speak a different language over there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, just because they share a border doesn't necessarily mean they see eye to eye or, or right. have a common parlance between the two of them or any of those things. Yeah. And I, you know, going this, this really is the kind of thing where we, we have to learn to articulate well to the audience that we're talking to and also really understand the background. I think, you know, opens, I, I open source has gone what we're talking about some 20 some years of history at this point has gone from sort of like a countercultural movement that the first time when I was in my early twenties that I ever said, we should use open source software. My boss looked at me and said, does it come on a CD-ROM and what's the licensing agreement? And I'm going, you're missing the point, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is a social movement, you know? And now that that same kind of perspective has sort of, um, uh, become so internalized, particularly in developer and DevOps worlds, that uh, we don't realize what the values are that we carry around. And that, you know, a mere few decades ago, these would have been considered uh, revolutionary in the light right. sense of the word and targeting you as possibly unemployable in the more, <laughs> you know, what giveaway software? No, what do you think this is? Um, well, there's a lot of experimentation. The one thing that I 
I'm lucky enough that I'm I'm an older fella. I've been I've seen a lot of stuff go on, and I've deeply sort of studied the path of the of the industry because I'm just I'm I'm either gently autistic and and have to like <laughs> capture these weird things that that excite me, but it it helps me to to form better opinions and ideas on where it can go next, so I can kind of, as Gretzky would say, skate where the puck is going. But uh-huh. the the trick there is that we saw this yeah this big wave of movement, and it was like really tough to sell, you know, at first. And I mean, even the browser wars, like we saw these waves of yeah. different things, and, but open source ultimately became better. And then we had the idea of the open cloud and look, I was team OpenStack, right? I was a contributor. I drove mm-hmm. a lot Me of, too. you know, a lot <laughs> of stuff around the, you know, speaking at the conferences and, and in, heavily involved in the community, working with this, with the committees and actually contributing back both, you know, verbally and through action and, and through code. Mm-hmm. And trying to find that way of doing it. And then for a variety of reasons, OpenStack didn't get massive adoption, at least to the level that we yeah. thought it could. Yeah. And then Kubernetes came along and it was sort of the new hotness. And we joke about it that way, but it it solved the real problem that OpenStack was seeking to solve, except that OpenStack kind of got stuck in the idea of everything must be open. And that sort of locked them into like, well, you can't have any interaction with the commercial offering. Kubernetes yeah. was like sort of the same, but they're they're succeeding on the shoulders of OpenStack, having gotten people excited about the idea of running cloud-like infrastructure without buying it from the cloud. And then public cloud became more accepted. And then the application developers started to develop new patterns for building applications. And mm-hmm. so now that Kubernetes is the new normal, right? It's the new vanilla no one's excited about infrastructure anymore. It's they bloody, well <laughs> yeah. right? Like what's yeah. the actual thing that you are designed to do as a human? I need my customer to be able to do a thing. How do we do that? We build an application, right? Mm-hmm. How do you run that application? Bingo. That's the, that's the new, that's the new Sparta. Yeah. That's the new thing, yeah. right? Let's, let's get out on the front line with that. Yeah. Yeah. And OpenStack was a good case study in, the sort of the the tension that can arise between what old guard companies that were dead set on protectionism and uh, especially of their software and their IP and things like that, and the sort of uh, open source mentality that that making the foundation freely available got us all to higher ground, right? Made, made right. it possible for us to build something uh, better, right? And I, I think. That's where Kubernetes succeeded is that the really even from the early days when, you know, when Brendan and company first released it out of Google was, you know, what we think we're giving you is a good solid foundation layer. And the things in the foundation layer are the things we're going to all cooperate on. What you build on top of it, you know, that's your own thing. We don't really have opinions yeah. about that as long as, you you know, you're running it on this system and and, and abiding by the, the, the rules. As long as you can write YAML, that's what I'm really trying to say. Yeah, exactly. Um, we're all YAML jockeys in the end. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think that was... That was one of the lessons we didn't learn particularly well in OpenStack was uh, I think I think uh, I I was working at a big corp and big corp, their interest in OpenStack was trying to hold back a right. piece that, that that we thought was valuable. And ultimately, we were wrong. It was not valuable. And the industry let us know that. Right. But we thought at the time it was. So we got a little protectionist over that. Whereas at the same time, you know, a lot of the. The core and early OpenStack developers had the same kind of Kubernetes vision going, let's get it all out in the open. 
and then you get tension in there. And then as the, uh, as the battle lines are drawn and then become intractable, then you look at the, the community around you and go, uh Oh, you know, we're in trouble. We, we, yeah. we literally are past the point of no return. And I, I shouldn't say it sort that dogmatically, right? Uh, OpenStack continues on today. And I know a number of wonderful people in there and I actually think right. it's, it's in a good, healthy place, but we all kind of look at it and say, it didn't reach the potential we knew we knew it had, right? We didn't quite get it to where we knew it could go. And that's, that's tough. It's a bitter pill to swallow. In a way, I, I'm so thankful that I went through that experience because it allowed me to you know, really deeply understand the human interaction inside that community in the enterprise versus open ecosystem. And I saw all these things kind of playing out where it was, we wanted to say like, let's absolutely stick to, we have to do this thing and we have to do this thing in this way. And like, mm-hmm. we were with you on the this thing part, you know, let's solve <laughs> the ubiquitous open cloud, like fantastic. Yeah. I love the mission. I love them. But, you know, how do we solve it? Well, where do we do integrations? Do we integrations in the core? Do we mm-hmm. do plugins? Do we do, you know, what's the, the right way to do this? <clears throat> and then on top of that, it was code versus package. And so I'm mm-hmm. a, I'm an ops person person uh mostly because i'm not smart <laughs> and i can't write code <laughs> i i so i can write enough code I, I work in ruby on rails not that i'm saying you don't you don't have to be smart to do ruby on rails but it's a f- simple dsl i i can use it out of the box i can generate an application in very little time so i just like i write a bunch of things in it super easy mm-hmm. so that's my limit and but the real fundamentalists in the ruby community were like mm, you shouldn't just you know use somebody else's gem, just like build your own. I'm like, no, 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 no. Assume that I can't. Like, that's just assume for a moment <laughs> I'm not that smart. And even in the docs community, we went through this inside OpenStack. Like, you understand that build from source is scary to people. Yeah. And yeah. there was a real dichotomy in the in the community around what was the path forward. And it was tough for either side. So then we saw the enterprise infusion and then they started mm-hmm. creating you know distributions and mm-hmm. it was this like it created you know all of a sudden it was this weird like white blood cell you know attack on enterprise <laughs> yeah yeah and sadly it you know it did create enough of a challenge in the way that the architecture and the community grew and a lot of a thousand things occurred that led to it reaching a point of stabilization that's still today thriving in telco and, and a lot mm-hmm. of other areas. Yeah. But then, like I said, so we took that learning and we said, okay, let's, you know, and Joe and Craig and, and Brendan, they, they, they see this Kubernetes thing, they push it out there and like, okay, cool. Now it looks like we have to get back to the same problems we were trying to solve with OpenStack. What lives <laughs> in the core, what lives in a separate project. Yeah. And I feel like it was being done, it's being done fairly well. Yeah. And that's, because of stuff we learned the hard way as you need to, like sometimes you just, it's like snowboarding. You don't just figure it out. Like you crash a bunch and then you're yeah. like, all right, today we're not going to crash. It's, it's, it's only after you've accumulated the right number of bruises that the muscle memory kicks in. And yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and, you know, Kubernetes and rails are actually a good comparison rails, the brilliance of rails. And, and I was never a big rails developer, but, but even from the sidelines, I understood why it was brilliant. It was brilliant because 
you could build a blog in 15 minutes and you didn't yeah. have to know how any of it worked. And then you could back your way into the depth of knowledge that you needed in order to accomplish whatever your problem was. And some people really did get all the way to the point where they're like, yeah, you don't use other people's gems. You know, if it's not hand rolled, it's not real at all. But yeah. you didn't have to be that person. Then you could be somewhere in the middle or you could be the kind of person I was where I wrote three or four Rails apps, never understood how any of the underlying worked and was just always amazed like, wow, that was the easiest data migration I have ever done. Wow, I just built a UI in like 22 minutes. This is amazing, you know, uh, and and that was the, the brilliance of it was that combination of saying at the end of the day, I think the brilliance of it was the combination of saying, look, to get people's to 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 hit people new people where they are right to to reach people where they are we have to make it easy to wrap your hands around the thing that you're that you're installing and using but we can't stop there right we have to have the right additional things and in this case it was gems and a a rich yeah. and thriving ecosystem of rails add-ons of individual gems and then that kind of thing uh so that people can continue building up until it gets where it needs to go um Kubernetes, I, from the beginning, I think they really wanted to be that way, right? From the from the first days that Craig and Joe and Brennan released it, I think they said, okay, that's that's the kind of thing we want. We're going to introduce a, a platform that is straightforward to explain. This is what it does. This is how it works. And we're going to give people tools to build out. But they didn't have, you know, the gems ecosystem to build upon. They didn't have a, a smattering or a, a thousands of different developers who were already out there building core pieces for Kubernetes. They really had to sort of bootstrap the entire thing from the ground up. And, you know, we got a good view we all got a good view of the fits and starts that they went through everything from like uh, third party resources, giving way to CRDs. You know, that was a, yeah. that was a little bit of a tough learning lesson and how to build an extensible system. You know, somebody finally having to say, we're not going to add a whole lot of more primitives to Kubernetes. If you want to add on new features, you're going to have to do it this way. I, I think the Kubernetes ecosystem as a whole has done a good job of trying to put enough boundaries on the core to keep it, cohesive. It's it's right. definitely not Rails where you can get going in 15 minutes and feel like you've just accomplished something big, but it's cohesive. Yeah. And then they, the, the ecosystem that you and I have watched develop over five years-ish now uh, has been one that provides the additional things that Kubernetes was missing and, and they're swappable and you can pick your own service mesh, you can pick your own monitoring uh, and you can pick your own volume system too. And, and yeah. I think that's been a good thing for them. And in infrastructure land i we didn't get there quite with openstack i don't think i i'm my my opinion is we didn't quite get to that level of sophistication as far as how we understood what was part of the necessary core and and then how people could add on to the core without being disruptive or requiring changes to the core yeah and it becomes an interesting as a technologist, we get excited about the the nerd bits, right? Like, and I I think of I'm this weird combination of I I love automation, but there's certain things I know that I like to put human attention to. And I, I joke that I drive a manual, you know, car. I did for years, <laughs> and uh, like I even paid more to get it with a stick shift because it was more expensive to source it because you couldn't find one. And then like I make my coffee with an AeroPress and it's a whole, it's a whole scene. Right. And, yep. but the reason I like doing those things is because I'm, I'm excited about the process as much as I am about the outcome, mm -hmm. but how do I get time to go and hand grind my coffee? Easy. 
I built a Ruby script and a Python script that handles a bunch of this other goofy stuff that I was spending <laughs> the day doing. So I can like yeah. have something go off and I automate the stuff that's that's mundane so that I can touch what matters. Yep. And you know, it's so when you get into open source development, then we also have the challenge of pure play, open only. And then there's sort of what Joseph Jackson and and a lot of folks in, in sort of his sphere of the open core, uh, mm-hmm. you know, idea. Yeah. And Lord knows uh, a lot of us have had exciting conversations <laughs> around whether that's even a viable thing. And then there's the, hey, let's do an enterprise backed commercial yeah. offering based on an open platform, but also make sure we're contributing back to the broader open source project and do this but i i'm a firm believer in the like let's give the opportunity for commercial growth on an open ecosystem because it will drive both sides successfully yeah it can't be like no no money's allowed to flow through this thing like if that was the case there'd be 11 people running kubernetes right now and one of them would be (laughs) yep yep we have to create uh, this ecosystem to succeed. And then, you know, especially in the developer community, it's that beautiful balance of like, like when DigitalOcean created the droplet, it was five bucks. See, like, so when I think of like pricing and packaging, which goodness knows, I know you probably spend more time of your day thinking about it than you time. wish. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you have to think like, what's the right, what's the point at which like iTunes, if I tell someone it's going to be a $199 or $499, which one are they going to pick? And mm-hmm. like, you have to find that right balance, but you're, so it doesn't look like you're profiting off them, but it does solve the problem to a level that they've attached a value to. And they're willing to give you that, yeah. like, I, I recognize the value and I see that I can generate a human ROI from it, or even a straight raw, like dollars and cents ROI from using the service that you've presented to me instead of home rolling my own. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the things that's easy to get confused about when as an you know, we're an outsider to look at our our ecosystem and the way that we do things is like, okay, so there's open source and there's free stuff and those are basically the same and then there's paid stuff. And and the 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 difference is is sort of um is is crucial to understanding I think how this system can work in an economically viable way right yeah. the the value of the open source thing is the visibility that all of us have into the same uh mechanism right we can call it code piece of code right uh and the and ideally right the ability for all of us to kind of collectively problem solve about it and add features and fix bugs and uh you know streamline and improve performance together and so it's not free in the sense of I built a thing and I gave it away. It's it's open in the sense that we can kind of collectively work on it. And yeah, some of us are doing a disproportionate amount of the work, but we accept that because it's a thing that we want to be in the world. You know, it's something we want to contribute into the universe of ideas. Uh, whereas free, that's the one where it's I, I'm giving you something that I spent a lot of time crafting by hand. You can't really do anything with it other than use it the way I intended. And uh, there's, as we've gotten going as a startup and said, okay, what, how do we, how do we try to deal with packaging and pricing? Well, the idea around the open source stuff 
And the reason why Fermion is an open source company is because that first definition is a really attractive and important one to us. If you're building something to help software developers do their job better, you need to give them a voice in how they do their job and how they want to do it better, right? And so it makes a ton of sense. You know, we released our spin open source tool um, and, and, and it'll always be open source. We've released it with a guarantee saying it'll always be open source because it's part of the core value proposition of what the tool is. Then when you get into, you know, operating things, when really what's going on, you know, beneath the beneath the fancy looking UI is that people are working hours and expending our resources in order to make something function on behalf of somebody else. Really, it goes back to kind of your earlier uh, statement about, you know, there are things I want to spend my time on and and I will spend 15 minutes, I, I will spend 15 minutes making a pour over, right? Because I, yeah. I like that process. It's cathartic. It's enjoyable. I love the focus. I don't want to spend 15 minutes updating packages on my server system. So there's a there's a good economic trade there and finding out what that good economic trade is. That's when that's when you start getting into uh, uh, commercializing open source. So I'm less of a fan of the I, I understand the open core model and I'm totally fine. I don't have any like ethical objections or anything like that. Right, I'm just right, right. less of a fan of that than I am of this idea that I can add value as a as an open we as an open source company can add value by taking on the burden of doing some of the stuff you don't really want to do, but you need to do, right? You want to run a website somewhere. You don't want to be the person who's up at two in the morning patching, you know, the, the latest, you know, SSL vulnerability or whatever. And, and that I think is a good economic trade. So we've been trying to balance a lot of that. And then the free one ends up being in the middle, right? So right. free is valuable to us as a, as a company, because it gives us a way of appealing to someone and saying, Hey, you know, try out this stuff, you know, run your first five apps for free. And if it resonates with you and, and it is the way you want to do things, you've already cut your risk down and we've already shown you we're good at running this stuff. And you don't, you don't, you won't be up at two in the morning because we'll be up at two in the morning. And, you know, you won't have to think too hard about your, you know, cloud provider bill because we gave you an easy, we're going to give you an easy model and you've already seen it and seen how it works and understood the measurements. So I think that's kind of the way the economics have ended up sort of playing out for me as we've been entering this journey of, you know, how do you, how are you an open source company with a sensible pricing policy that's trying to sell something that should be sold and collaborate on something that should be collaborated upon? Yeah. And I, that's why I was definitely a fan in that idea that you're taking the principles of both sides, bring them together. And like I said, I'm, I'm with you, like the, the costs, right. The commercial open source software model, then there's the open core, then there's the pure, you know, only free, only open. Then there's the, the close, the walled garden enterprise. There are yeah, really good reasons for every ecosystem to live the way it does. And, and I'm not, I'm not sort of married to one or the other. I'm a bit of a laissez-faire you know, <laughs> yeah. code, code yeah. creator Same. and consumer. So uh, there are points where I'm like, hey, I like the idea of that somebody's going to create a viable commercial model. That means that it's, there's a likelihood that they're going to stay around mm -hmm. and yeah. thus they're going to be doing innovation that I don't do. And then I can benefit from their innovation in the platform yeah. versus me having to write my own bloody gems. Right. So if I'm going, <laughs> yeah, wanna, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I want to dive into, you know, web assembly and, and, and make my journey towards that as a as a platform, I wouldn't nest. I wouldn't want to do it if I knew it was only purely open source. And that's not that it's not good and couldn't grow. But I personally 
would not have the comfort in building broadly production software, mm-hmm. knowing that it, it's the only way out is uh, through the community and the issues tab and getting yelled at by people saying, you know, <laughs> can't force yep. me to write code, like totally get it. I just need some help here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I and I like that. I feel like it's a it's a good, honest way. You know, we all are looking for the right way to make a living doing something we're passionate about, right? Yeah. And and also do it in a way that's sort of collectively helping each other out as we go. And I'm liking the way that this kind of uh, open source paid services kind of model has been working out as as an opportunity to do that. Uh, and and sleep at night, right? I guess that's right. at the end of the and and it really is kind of fun in a way because uh, I, I loved your coffee making metaphor because because first of all I love coffee, but second of all because it really kind of captures that idea that we do hobbies, uh, which the uh, there's a I believe it was Jane McGonigal was the author of a, a book about game theory uh, games how to how to build games, um, and and pointed out you know the difference between a hobby and work is, uh, you know, if, in the bald face sort of way is you get paid to work and you don't to do a hobby. Why do we find more enjoyment on the hobby than we do on work? And, you know, she right. spends a lot of time in in her book, you know, talking about uh, why that is and what is appealing about it. But at the end of the day, it's a core piece of human psychology. I like to do some things and don't like to do other things. Right. And you like to do a different set of things and don't like to do a, set, a different set of things. And you know, the services model is in a way, a kind of negotiation of saying, well, you know, I got a bunch of platform operators who absolutely, platform engineers who absolutely love running big platforms at scale. Let them, you know, let's let's contribute to their well-being by paying, you know, paying them to, to do their job. And we'll get to do the fun stuff in the collaborative open source space. And I think that's an interesting kind of way of conceptualizing what the trade-offs are that we're making in different in different places. You know, and I, I think of it as again, like the the question that I ask when I talk to anybody, you know, even in in sort of selling my own services and, and like it's always very simple. So like what's the biggest problem facing your organization in the next 12 months? It's not whether we own our software or whether it's open source. It's whether we can build applications and get them out there. It's whether we can do it at a cost that is going to be manageable. It's whether we can do it on demand uh, versus, you know, having to dive in and and re-platform everything. Like the requirements may line up with what an open solution can deliver, but being open is not in the mind of most CEOs, CIOs, uh, and yeah. it, they love the idea. And it's, it's, it is a, a good feature, but it is just that it's a feature, the same as dark mode that yeah. it <laughs> sounds super yeah. important to everybody unless it's not. Yep. <laughs> no, I like that way of articulating it. I think so. What If you could, you know, looking at where you're at, right now what excites you about WebAssembly in what it can do for the industry so the the short-term view of why we're excited about WebAssembly is because it provides us a better way to execute a lot of these kinds of applications we wanted to so just you know to give a sort of two-second you know overview of what of what WebAssembly is by comparing it to other things it's essentially kind of like the java virtual machine but with a couple of fundamental differences, one of them being 
you know, it's really oriented toward fast startup time. Another being it's really oriented toward very, very high security. And the third being it's really oriented toward bringing in lots of different languages instead of, you know, marrying the v virtual machine to the, the, right. the language virtual machine to a particular language. But that means that we can kind of pick it up and drop it in different places. We can drop it in the browser where it started. We can drop it in the cloud, which is what Fermion's doing. You can drop it in IoT. You can drop it in plugin systems. And it's just kind of a cool general purpose technology that for us, our immediate goal is to say, we're going to drop it in the cloud and show you how it can run alongside virtual machines and containers and solve some of the problems that have felt intractable in those other two ecosystems, you know, startup speed problems, cross-platform. Yeah. It's, it's great to be able to compile at once and literally have no idea whether the cloud virtual machine you're on is Windows or Linux or ARM or Intel or some other entirely exotic thing that you've never run before. Uh, and and th those are exciting features today. WebAssembly, though, has an interesting trajectory that it's traveling that I think is going to make it really interesting tomorrow. And, and to me, I kind of frame everything out in distributed computing terms because that's the end game for me is how do we do distributed computing in a real way? Right. Uh, so WebAssembly is working on a uh, the WebAssembly core team, the working group in W3 and the Bytecode Alliance is working on a component model that essentially will allow you to take two different WebAssembly binaries and communicate via the runtime, via the host, uh, back and forth. And so one binary can call the functions in another binary, and, and that binary can call the functions in a third binary. And that is, that's actually kind of, kind of, uh, I, I am tempted to say revolutionary, but if you rewind 40 minutes, you will hear me give the warning that every time we say that, really what we're saying is we're taking ideas that were nascent back in the common decom world and the corba uh, world back in the late 90s and yeah. we're revitalizing those again now because we've accrued the right tech stack to be able to take it up to the next level at this point and that i think is where the promise is so pause on that one and say okay well distributed computing how have we done on distributed computing well the honest assessment is we've done really well you know rewind 10 years ago and the only place the only place you'd hear distributed computing is in your upper division cs classes at university right and now yeah. we throw that word around there you know we we bandied about with with a le level of casualness because we've got a we've got ourselves a kubernetes we've got ourselves a container ecosystem and yeah. service meshes and microservices and all of those have made it work but we're still really kind of stuck in this world where when we say distributed computing we really mean when limited to just the data center or even just one region or or something. Uh, and then we're trying to stretch it slowly out to be multi-region or uh, or maybe um, cross-cloud, right? right. My, my on-prem cloud and my, uh, my on-prem installation and my one that's running in AWS or Azure or whatever. But real distributed computing needs to kind of break out of that that idea that it's that it's constrained to a particular set of pre-allocated computing devices. And this whole idea that WebAssembly may be able to be highly portable and we can move it around places and we can split execution because of the component model across different processors and maybe across separate systems and even separate networks, all of that means that we should be moving ourselves toward the next kind of step on the staircase toward really, really amazing distributed computing. So that's where I think we're going in the future. And that's why I talk about this as a 10-year technology, because I think we're just now, you know, on, we've just now assembled the second stair of a staircase that's going to be 10, 12, 14, 15 steps tall, right? Yeah, Maybe yeah. taller, uh, but but it's definitely an exciting future. And, and the, the reason why we at Fermion have gone 
yeah, this is a worthwhile investment, right? It's not a two-year tech. It's not the kind of thing we have to build and sell real quick before the economy turns. It's the kind of thing where we're building our way towards something that we think is going to really open up new opportunities for building you know, better video games, uh, better applications for our phones, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe meta, metaverse kinds of, I don't know, you know, yeah. we, we really are not sure what we can build once we get several stairs up on the staircase. So that's, that's why I'm excited about it. And I think that's really what we need. Number one, that, you know, as always as a founder, you have to be excited about the, the <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. you had to be excited about the problem. Because if you're not excited about the problem, and then you are surely not going to be excited about selling the solution to the problem. Yeah. Like you have to be, you have to be like all in on like, so this is, this sucks. Like this really, this is really hard today. And <laughs> right, like right. I, and I get it. And that sort of like we talk about empathy as like a, a thing that everybody needs, and and a, a thing that lacked in a lot of sort of business and 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 technology teams mm -hmm. right as this, this general lack of empathy like stuff needs to get done like but no you can still have it the stuff needs to get done but that you are empathetic to the experience of the person that's living that problem every day yeah and i used to get it when i would you'd get on calls with with folks you know and and you know i'd have a sales team you know where, where i was before and they're like hey can you jump on this call to help out because they're doing you know some technology and i'm just stupidly nerdy enough to have no <laughs> you know whatever it was and then i would get on there and they'd think like oh the first thing you're going to do is talk about our solution and I'd be like, no, no. I said, hey, so what's, you know, what's kind of, what's the big thing that happened to you today? And I'm like, oh yeah, we had a problem, whatever. And like, oh, and, you know, and then we would like dig in. Next thing you know, we're talking about like vampire taps and token ring and oh, man. <laughs> like, was, like all this craziness, like you would have like, yeah, you know, like, you know, like type one, like we would get into like the sort of the, the history museum of like our past technology. Mm -hmm. And then at that point they're like, oh, so you know, what would really be cool is if I had a way that I could do X. Mm-hmm. And now they're excited about the problem. They they they've shown you they have the problem, so they're acknowledging the problem exists. They're acknowledging they are experiencing the problem, and uh, sadly, this becomes the like, all right, here we go. I just set the <laughs> ball. Now we happen to have a solution that will solve this problem in a differentiated way that allows you to get to an outcome, and then yeah. So that's you as a founder have to be excited about both things. One, super excited about the problem. You want to you want to love how much it sucks. And then on the yeah. outside, you have to be you have to have an outcome. You can't just solve the problem. And be like, all right, cool, right? I sold you tape. That's yeah. tape. Yeah. Tape is not a growing industry. You need to think about what can I do because I gave you this tape. And it's, that's exciting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think there are some people who would hear what you just said and say, well, that's manipulative. And but then it's not, though, because what what you're saying is, uh, you know, we as we as creators and founders, right, our passion is trying to find a problem to solve and to, and to throw ourselves into solving it. Right. Yeah. So to us, the important thing is, are we solving the problem? The disingenuous to flip that way to flip that around on a customer is to say, "Hey, you need this. You need this. You know, let me give it to you. Right. Let me let me cut a deal with you." The the authentic way to 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 quote unquote sell it is to say, "Do you have this problem? Tell me about the problem. How's the problem impacting you?" And I actually do care about 
what right. you're saying, not necessarily because I'm trying to make a sale. You know, that is part of the whole economic exchange. And we just have to recognize that as a reality of how economy works. But because I'm passionate about the problem that you're articulating. And so as you articulate it, I get excited when I can say I can solve some or all or most of that problem for you. But also I'm hearing you tell me I can't solve this part over here yet, but I could, you know, so it's, it, that's, I think the more authentic exchange is to actually meet people where they are born out of frustration and, yeah. and, uh, uh, you know, being generally flummoxed on how to actually address their problem. I like that. I love the way you say that, because to me, there's no, there's not even an air of being manipulative in that case. It's really meeting people where they are and listening to them tell the story and say, okay, I think I can line up some of your problems with the stuff that we've been building. And I'm passionate about that because it is the problem we've been trying to solve, you know? Yeah, so yeah. I love the way you articulated that. It really, it it's why I've really adored the idea of like, I have a high school education, but I studied behavior psychology for fun because that's the kind of <laughs> that I am. And yep. uh, I went with a friend to uh, to go take like 201 and like 30, like 200 and 300 level behavioral psychology classes at university till eventually they figured out that I was not on the roll. And then they asked me to stop coming <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, yes. so it, and what excited me about that was the solutions neat, but what why is the solution important? What's the problem? What's the way they're trying to solve it today? that allows you to have a solution that's differentiated. Like first has to have required capabilities. Like I need to be able to do this, this, and this. And, you know, then you sell the commercial side of it needs to do it in a way that's differentiated from other methods. Mm -hmm. So that makes is whether it's innovative, whether it's cheaper, faster, like some, some innovation that's occurred. And then we'll go, you know, like, and so you walk through that yeah. sort of thing. And like you said, it sounds manipulative, but that's like saying, Math is manipulative because bees make honeycombs <laughs> and hexagons. Like, <laughs> yeah. What yeah. we're doing is we've measured the most effective way to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And that's, like I said, you, you can be excited about the outcome. You have to know that this is a thing you can do. And it can't be to like, you can reduce an FTE by one. You're like, no, no, you can't. Like, what can <laughs> you actually do? Yeah. And then yeah. that's where the... It, it allows you to really just, I, I shouldn't love the problem as much as I do, but it's like when you go around and you explain like, so I've noticed this problem and people are like, totally. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like, yeah. All right. Cool. It's not just me. <laughs> no. And loving the problem is what uh, helps the innovator innovate. Right. You know, whether it's, you, you can't build a better bicycle until you understand what the problem the rider is facing is and what the pain that they're going through is, which oftentimes being one year oftentimes means being one yourself. Yeah. Uh, and then once you understand it, then you're bringing value to it when you try and solve it. And, and then it's only when you're articulating, I solved problem X by doing Y and, and then listening to people say, yeah, I have a problem like that. Uh, that's, that's the way, that's the way an innovator sells a product, I think, by being yeah. honest about why we're innovating and the, and the problem that keeps us up at, at night. And then, well, we, 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 we have these strongly ambivalent feelings toward the problem. We hate it and we love it because it's motivating us to do something and to innovate and to exercise all of that creativity. Yeah. Yeah. You basically have to like, you have to treat the problem the way that David Goggins treats his running shoes. You just wake up every day and you <laughs> stare at them for half an hour and just say like, I hate you, but I'm going to, we're going to solve this today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
So in I know we, I, and I, I, I just I, realized I, I do have to go pick up a child from school. Exactly. <laughs> we are we we've gone over, and I only wish we could uh, got it. We could do this all day, uh, and we've gone in less directions than I would love to, be, and hopefully yeah. we'll we'll have more chance to talk. But it's been really I think insightful for people that are like understanding the right way in which you have to be to build something that has an outcome that has a positive impact inside the ecosystem to a customer, to the financial world. Like we all get better. Uh, So I'll say kudos to you and the team on both the, the thing you're solving and the way in which you're solving it, because I think that's fundamentally the differentiator as a company from where you know a lot of people are like they can solve a technical problem, but that is not going to lead to like a zero to yeah. one capability that you're giving to somebody. Like it's solving the way that a jar, you know, is with the little notches instead of just uh-huh. circular. Like some of my jars still have no notches in them and and I'm I don't care. Like <laughs> so some poor guy came yeah. up with that thing, you know, some some poor girl sitting in an engineering lab like, what if we put notches in there, like divots on the on the golf ball? Like that's cool. But like uh it we didn't care enough about the problem to keep solving it that way. So yeah. this is like I'll say method. I'm I'm on team Fermion uh oh, as thanks. far as what, what you folks are doing. We'll talk more. Um and if people want to reach you. What's the best way they can do that? And of course, we'll have links to uh, to the website and and to the project mm-hmm. and such. Yeah, I'm always uh, always around on Twitter at Technosophos. In fact, I am Technosophos pretty much everywhere uh, because there are too many Matt Butchers in the world, but there was only one. I know that feeling too so. well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and of course, you know, hit us up in the Discord on Fermion. I'm there. The rest of the Fermion team is, and we love talking about everything related to WebAssembly cloud and that kind of thing. Fantastic. Awesome. And yeah, and also thank you for giving to the community in that way that you're driving a broad standards adoption in a way that everybody else can can win from it. And I think that's where, uh, yeah, we'll see a lot of really neat stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, some other things didn't solve that. I'll say like sort of like the phone gaps of the world, like the problem was interesting, but it wasn't so interesting that it needed to be solved. Yeah, you are solving yep. a genuine problem, and you're also contributing back to an ecosystem that can help solve other problems. And it's a win-win all around. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty. I hope so. Good. That's that's our passion. It's uh, and it's that passion needs to be there to to push through to where it is. So, like I said, yeah. your your patience and aggressiveness perfectly combined. <laughs> uh, you know, I got to solve this problem, but I'm willing to wait for the outcome as we solve it. Yeah. you'll do yeah. well you'll do well and we'll talk and i'll be here in a one year and we talk about your series uh a and, uh, <laughs> it'll we'll, be b by then yeah <laughs> that's right yeah exactly you say like, we, we'll just we keep on going and i see fantastic things ahead so thank you very much yeah and, thanks uh, so much this has been an amazing conversation loved it it's uh i'm i always say if if you have a conversation that it sounds like you wouldn't want to leave your dinner table because the person beside you having a really good chat and like that's a win to me so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. We'll go uh, do things. I do things. And of course, for people that are watching, make sure you just head on down below, click the link and uh, shout out to the fine folks at Fermion Techno Sophos. That's really cool. Matt Butcher, thank you very much. Thank you. All righty.